This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We talk with Dr. Jennifer Bombush about elder abuse on the eve of Elder Abuse Awareness Day. Many women at various times in life might ask the question, is this it? Luria Kazakoff, blogger at iCovet.ca, talks to me about living and loving again after divorce. Also, Holly Ann Martin joins me from Australia to talk about protecting our kids from abuse online and in the real world. Dr. Gurdeep Parhar joins me and shares his story, his personal story, with racism. Have you heard about COVID-19 long haulers? Dr. Gurdeep Parhar tells us about them. And finally, registered nurse Eric joins me to discuss men's sexual health concerns, including lap dances. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. But right now, I want to talk about something very important on the eve of Seniors Elder Abuse Awareness Day tomorrow, June 15th. Joining me on the line is Dr. Jennifer Bombush, who is an expert in this field and also a professor at the University of British Columbia. So I said, I read some of the information that you sent over to me. Uh, this is a heartbreaking issue, elder abuse, um, because oftentimes, well, it's oftentimes come a to- comes at a time when people are vulnerable. They may have advancing age and medical conditions and other concerns. They may not be as cognitively sharp as they have been in the past. And the shocking thing is it's often children or relatives who are um, emotionally or financially abusing um, the, their parents, their loved ones. What is the prevalence of elder abuse? So uh, we don't do a great job of researching the prevalence of elder abuse. It's a fairly difficult thing to look at. But the last study estimated it at about 7.5% of the older adult population is experiencing some type of abuse. And is that because people are ashamed about this subject? They're embarrassed? They don't want to say that their children are, are doing this so that they, so they are in denial? Absolutely, that's a big part of it. I think that people tend to feel very embarrassed, especially if it's your own child who is your abuser. And also some people have been in very long-term abusive relationships with their spouses. So just because they're getting older doesn't mean this is something new in their life. And a big part of it, too, can be for people to think, well, what happens if I leave this relationship? Because the option oftentimes is moving into a long-term care home. And so people may rationalize that it's better to stay in the situation than that they're in. And, and we've seen certainly and talked about on this program some of the issues, the systemic issues across the long-term care homes in this country and the country to our south. Um, what are the different types of elder abuse? So the different types are physical abuse, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse, neglect, and then that more systemic type of abuse that you've just mentioned, which um, we're now seeing is happening in our long-term care system. Right. And we definitely need a paradigm shift in that uh, arena of life. And who are the perpetrators? I mentioned often it's children, but um, who are the most common this may surprise you. So across, yeah, across all of the different types of uh, elder abuse that I mentioned, so the physical, sexual, psychological, financial, and neglect, are the people who are in the closest relationships with older adults. So typically their spouses, their children, their grandchildren. 
um, and other people in their social networks. So I think sometimes we have this notion that there's a boogeyman out there with the online scams and things like that. And while those exist, The reality is that the people who are in the closest relationships with older adults who are most likely to be the perpetrators. It's just so sad to think that somebody who gave you life, um, you know, your life is being taken away effectively by somebody uh, who was created out of love more often than not. Um, And so what are some of the risk factors for elders experiencing abuse? Well, I think it is, um, first and foremost, foremost to really look at the social isolation that people might be experiencing because that certainly puts them in a position to maybe not have many avenues out of that experience. As people become more dependent for help, so you mentioned that um, a little bit off the top, that can lend itself to fostering an abusive situation, so needing more help with uh, getting dressed, using the washroom, and even needing more help with things like banking or shopping, where you're um, opening yourself up to particular kinds of elder abuse, like financial abuse. And then that issue around um, the long-term abuse relationship, where this might have existed and persisted for a very long time, being single, which is part of that social isolation, and being a woman. Those are all some of the risk factors. And in this pandemic, are we seeing, given the social isolation, is is elder abuse on the rise, or, or do you know that? We don't know that. I think that will, you know, take time to show in the statistics, but I think in the stories that we're hearing, they're certainly um, very distressing to hear what is happening to socially isolated older adults, particularly the rise of neglect. So there's a bigger conversation right now happening because neglect has always been sort of, you know, is that elder abuse or is that not? And I think that conversation is taking place right now as we see the results of neglect in people, you know, even in stories of people um, who are malnourished or dehydrated and are are dying for those reasons um, is something that we really need to look at. And I want to ask you what we can do about this, but first, I, I'm just thinking of a scene, uh, perhaps, or probably a very common story where a couple has been together for a long period of time, and one of them has uh, failing health care, uh, maybe some medical conditions, maybe some cognitive decline, and their former, you know, what was their lover all these years, their partner, their spouse, all of a sudden becomes their caregiver. And we, we've certainly talked about caregiver stress in this program, but is it the mere fact of uh, changing roles? Perhaps the partner is more tired, uh, more demands are placed on that partner. They may have be somebody who doesn't have a lot of patience. They may be experiencing pandemic fatigue or fatigue of caring for somebody else. And does, is that, does that place people at greater risk of elder abuse? I think absolutely it does because people are really being pushed to their limits right now. And it's not always common knowledge how to access help and support. And so I think there's a general higher level of anxiety right now. And if you're being asked to provide more care and aren't really getting relief, um, that can be very challenging. We've seen changes happening in the home support system as we sort of figure out how can staff safely go into people's homes in the communities and what does that look like. So even people who were getting support, they may have seen um, a decline in the level of support that they're getting. So these are all things that could trigger or play into rising levels of elder abuse. And what can we do about elder abuse? I mean, we have so many problems in this world um, and we don't need another one, but what can we do about this? 
Well, I think that um, really looking around your community and reaching out to people who may be at risk for social isolation is important. One of the things around disclosing abuse is that you want to be able to do that in a safe relationship. So building those relationships with the older adults who are in your community, in your neighborhood. And then looking at this more Having a little difficulty hearing you, Dr. Bombush. Sorry. That's okay, but... Go ahead. I was going to say, looking at what resources exist in the community and if they're um, accessible for older people. Right. And uh, decreasing that social social isolation is critical. I heard, I was listening to a podcast today, and this gentleman said he lived in L.A. and he had known one neighbor on on the block, you know, of like 30 neighbors before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, they've all been texting and caring about each other. And they mentioned there was an elderly gentleman who lived at the end of the block and they were reaching out, making sure he was being checked on and, and caring. And I think reach out and help others, creating shelters that support people who are elderly, frail and disabled, which is uh, something I think you believe you said, and and uh, we may have missed that. Well, thank you so much for uh, contributing to the program this evening, Dr. Bombush. And where can people get more information? So we have a wonderful uh, organization in Canada. It's the um, Canadian Prevention of Elder Abuse Association. And anyone who wants more information can look up that organization and find lots of resources. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And again, tomorrow is Elder Abuse Awareness Prevention Day. So thank you very much. And I appreciate all of your great work in this field. Thank you so much. You know, we have these plans in life and sometimes they don't work out exactly as we had hoped. One word, pandemic. Well, joining me on the line is a woman who got to a point in her life where she asked, is is this it? We all often ask that question. She is the blogger at icovet.ca. Good evening, Laria. She is Laria Kazakoff and she joins me on the line. Hi, Laria. Hi, Maureen. How How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Now, I love your blog. As you know, I reached out to you uh, after discovering this. Uh, You talk a a lot about what many women or many people who identify as women um, think about but may not say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I try to be open and honest for sure. Which I think is really helpful in this world where oftentimes people are putting on a front. Now, you got to a time in your life where your marriage hadn't worked out as planned. You were looking mm-hmm. at the next phase. Tell me a little bit about that time. So uh, I started writing the blog sort of when um, my ex-husband and I decided to take another crack at our relationship. So there was a bit of uncertainty going on. So writing became my creative outlet, and it was a way of processing what was happening at the time. Um, And honestly, it started more for myself as a journal, and uh, spending a month in Paris, I thought, oh, this is a great way to talk about travel, et cetera. But um, after my trip, he decided to call the marriage off, and that's when the writing took off, and that's, that's what's next happened. And I just needed to share my feelings and my ups and downs and hoping somebody out there would relate and that it would be helpful. And I, you know, I, everyone has a story and I'm not any different and uh, I'm relatable. And so I really like to just talk about topics that just kind of pop up 
as I go along. It's my journey. And, and they're often very common subjects um, that you talk about. One of your blogs is You Deserve a Lover, um, which who doesn't? Uh, exactly. And you dive into these personal stories. I always say when we, when we share our stories, you know, we empower other people, and you certainly do that. And um, how do you feel that um, your blog can help other uh, women? Well, I'm relatable. I mean, I had, you know, I heard stories. I had a lot of women come up to me and, I mean, some crazy stories. I mean, mine was pretty straightforward, more or less. Um, There's no instruction manual. You've got to do what you do to get through um, a difficult time. And I love it when um, women and men uh, reach out to me and I can listen and offer what I know uh, from my experience. And if they can use my blog as a resource from my experience and it's it's rewarding and i and I've, I've helped in some little way for sure exactly and you've gone really deep you've shared a very personal story about uh the the search for your biological mother exactly yeah. well yeah it um you know i i kind of exhausted all the usual um uh ways to to do the search you know there were um, obstacles like um, uh, the province put in. So if, if someone closes your file, it's basically shut. So then along comes Ancestry.com, uh, which my son's gifted me for Christmas a couple of years ago. And it's literally a spit in the tube and off it goes to <laughs> Ireland, I think. And I got it back in six weeks. And you literally get all this information. And for me, it was more or less uh, getting my um, my health records, knowing that kind of history, because being adopted, you don't know any of this. So it was it was helpful. Just uh, I had some people reach out to me. Um, unfortunately, not my birth mother, and that's okay. And I she has her reasons, and I respect her for it. And it was uh, it wasn't about a meeting, and it was really about um, again my health going forward. You know, right. And and on some level, I mean, some people would might feel very hurt about that. At least, you know, you've put that out there, recognizing feelings. Um, I, you know, we all want to be loved by our parents. And you had beautiful parents who loved you and and gave you a great life. Yes. And I knew that I was adopted all my life. There was no big secret. Uh, In fact, my mom was uh, a driver in it a lot of the time. She would always, you know, always ask, are you not curious who your, your parents are? And and, and that might just stem from her being um, uh, quite a bit older as a parent. She was in her mid-40s when she adopted me. My father was quite a bit older than that. So as older parents, I guess you would want to think maybe there's another family out there for your child. Right. And, uh, yeah, and they were very supportive. It was great. Yeah, yeah, they, they sounded lovely. I feel like I've gotten mm-hmm. to know you quite well through your blog. <laughs> uh, now, dating mm-hmm. after divorce, that can be a very fearful thing for many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so tell me a little bit about that. Well, let's just say I'm at the wax bar way more often than I used to be. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> None of us are at the wax bar these days. Oh, my God. Everything's shut down. <laughs> hey, you can get laser, and then you never have to worry about I waxing know. in a yeah, pandemic. <laughs> hint, hint. Not that I know anyone that's had that. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you know, I had a lot of different um, 
I, I did go on the dating website. It's not ideal. It wasn't my thing. I'd go on and I'd go off um, back and forth. But I did meet some interesting people. And I think um, just enjoy it. Like, it, it really forces you, if anything, to meet some interesting people out there. You just you have to be open. Have fun with it. Don't overthink it. Exactly. And, uh uh, I, I want yeah. you to hang on the line if you don't mind. Yeah. I just have another sure. question because you write a lot about this social social isolation that we find ourselves. So in this pandemic, I was thinking today yeah. I have pandemic fatigue and I really don't want to complain because I'm so grateful that I'm not sick, knock on wood, um, yeah. you know, and that others, uh, that I, you know, there's nobody that I care about that is either. So, but I know so many people are. We talk about this every Sunday night, but, you know, there I have a bit of pandemic fatigue from doing nothing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or then all of a sudden it's been a rush back to, you know, I was out of my clinical practice for a couple of months and, and now people are wanting to come back. And so, you know, I'm, I'm working long, late hours. Um, but in that pandemic time where it was slow and quieter, you know, I tie-dyed sweatsuits and I got some <laughs> paddle boards and <laughs> baked bread and made cakes. I've made more Everyone cakes. Everyone was baking bread. <laughs> I was making cakes. <laughs> anyway, oh I made gosh. birthday cakes for everyone. Sometimes people got three. <laughs> of them but so we try to find these things but you know um what are you you talk about this in in your blog the social isolation um mm-hmm. what are some mm-hmm. of the things that you recommend to women to help take their minds off of it or deal with the issues that women deal with on a daily basis um yeah. some of the concerns and the worries and the kids and the bills and the wipes and the you know the whole thing yeah yeah well yeah so i think everyone's got a a story about you know, 2020 is canceled and I was supposed to be in Italy for two months and that didn't happen. So, you know, it's uh, life throws you lemons and so you make lemonade. And we, uh, my guy and I, we decided we're going to paint the inside of our house. And, you know, it's the regular, we're doing the chores and we're maybe getting a little tired of all the spring cleaning and we're just waiting for summer to get here. Um, but, you know, there's, you still got to make time date night, uh, you know, just, um, and hanging out with the kids, you know, you know, the parks are finally just opening and you see them out there. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a slow um, go of just trying to do normal in a non-normal situation. And uh, even, gro- you, know, you know, grocery shopping can be fun, I suppose, for at least I try to come up with a new dish and uh, experiment on everybody who will let me. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, you you have yeah. a picture of yourself uh, lifting weights on on the blog yeah, called New Ways sure. is the name yeah, of that New blog Ways, exactly and so that was trying to do workouts uh, with my trainer online and we're doing happy hour on Zoom calls and uh, yeah I mean even yeah I mean I got away last weekend but I I even said in that last blog that if you can't get away not everybody can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, make time and and uh, get rid of the kids if you can to some someone safe your bubble, and uh, you know make make it a spa night and make it special for you and your partner, and uh, try. We're all just trying the best that we can just to get into some normal routine. 
Well, and, well, we uh, sure. So there's some of the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. we sure are, and I can hear your optimism um, coming through the radio, which is just so nice to hear. It's just, just a yeah. positive attitude. You've certainly had some struggles, some challenges. What woman or anyone who identifies a wo- as a woman has not had challenges? Um, we all have, and sometimes it's difficult. Um, yeah. You know, we feel less than or not worthy, um, mm-hmm. and so you certainly dive into the deep subjects and I really appreciate it. So thank well, you for your work. That's great. Well, well, thank you so much. You're yes, very I welcome. Enjoy it. And the blog is icovet.ca and I suggest that you head on over there and uh, read every single blog because it's extremely interesting and, uh, and believe me, you will feel better for doing so. Thank you so much, Luria. Thank you, Maureen, for having me. You're very welcome. She is Managing Director for Safe for Kids, specializing in protective education for parents and teachers designed to help them keep children safe, both in the real world and online. She is Holly Martin, Holly Ann Martin, sorry, and she joins me from Western Australia. Good good morning, Holly Ann. Yes, it's half past 11 in the morning here. <laughs> right, and we're thank half you past for eight. Having me on. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. It's fantastic work that you do, uh, educating parents and teachers uh, about this societal malignancy that exists, that is under the covers quite, quite often, uh, denied by many people. Um, but your, your work is uh, life altering and um, phenomenal, quite frankly. So tell me a little bit about how you help children construct a safety team. What is that all about? So in protective education, there's lots of aspects of it, but the safety team is, is a major part. And we help children set up a group of five adults that will listen to them and believe them and take action if necessary. Um, and especially in this time when children's, um, you know, normally on a child safety team would be people from school, but, you know, with isolation and things like that. So kids may not be able to have a safety team. Um, so one of the things that I would suggest your listeners do is actually sit down with their children, trace around their hand and, you know, just have them go through. If you didn't feel safe, who, who could talk to um, how I encourage people to do it is on the thumb, they would have anybody from their home and it could be mum and dad and grandma with them or whoever, whichever adults are in their home. And then on the next two fingers would be two people from school. And then on the last two fingers are two people from the community. So it could be aunts and uncles and grandparents, next door neighbours, sports coaches, just other adults that they could talk to. And it's really important that kids have these you know, these different adults from different parts of the community because lots of parents say, oh, if my kids didn't feel safe, they'd come and talk to me. But for whatever reason, children don't. And we know, especially if children have suffered child sexual abuse, um, we had a Royal Commission here in Australia and evidence shows that if children were abused, if women were abused as children, they don't tell for maybe... Um, between 20 and 22 years and uh-huh. for men it's between 25 and 27 years if they ever tell uh-huh. so to have this safety team is really really important for young people and, and one of the things that I also do when I'm working with children is on the palm of their hands is where their friends, pets, toys, god siblings go um, they're not safety team people but they might practice the words or they might tell a friend and then their friend goes with them to tell a grown up 
But one of the um, things I do, and again, for your listeners to be able to do, here in Australia we have something called the Kids Helpline, and I've just looked up and you have the, the Kids Help Phone um, in Canada, which is a 24-7 phone number, and I would um, you know, encourage parents to actually sit down with their children and ring that phone number so that the kids know what it's like. Because I can tell you about something, but when kids actually physically get to hear the other person on the end of the line um, and, you know, the fact that it's 24-7, um, if kids wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning because they've had a nightmare, to know that they could ring and talk to somebody is really reassuring for kids and especially in this time of isolation. If they can't talk to their parent about how they're feeling, um, you know, to be able to talk to, to somebody um, on the other end of the phone or message them or email them, it can be really, really really reassuring for young people. Exactly. And I just want to step it back a little bit and uh, remind the listeners that child sexual abuse includes a wide range of behaviors and situations. And the offenses can range from one-time occurrences, which can really still negatively impact a person's life over the long term, to multiple experiences. And it can be one offender or multiple offenders. And there may be abuse involved as well. Um, Voyeurism, falls into this and exposing a child to pornography, to hands-on sexual offenses. And in Canada, we have one in 10 Canadians report being sexually victimized before they are, turn the age of 18. And in most of the child sexual abuse cases, the offender is known to the child. And 93% yes. of child abuse cases are never brought forward to police or child welfare. These are sobering statistics. I see it in my clinical practice. I mainly see women and men in my clinical practice around the age on average about 30 to about 80 and I can tell you that it's more than 10% Um, so many people have reported to me uh, that they were sexually abused as a child and this impacts intimacy can you tell me and the listeners a little bit about the effects of especially the mental health impact of childhood sexual abuse well, you know, and it's different for everybody. And, you know, it could could be somebody being flashed at a bus stop, you know. Um, and every time that the person goes past the, that bus stop, they're going to have a flashback. Um, you know, it, it's... Here in Australia, we say one-third of Australia's children will suffer some form of sexual abuse before their 18th birthday. Um, and like you say, that's the whole spectrum. So that could be children seeing pornography. Um, but you know, the impacts, the lifelong impacts are so devastating. It can be why people turn to alcohol and drugs and, and things like that. And we, I'm not saying that we can stop it by teaching protective education, but we can give children the tools to be able to tell us sooner so that they don't go down that path, that we can get them the support that they need, that they don't need to turn to alcohol and drugs and things like that. Because this is the most common response is silence. Is that correct to um, to to disclosure to childhood sexual abuse? And and so it's important that we break that silence. And you're doing great work to do that. And you know something that's not talked about very much is that about forty five percent of all sexual abuse of children is either children to children or teenagers on children, and it quite often could be siblings. Um, So you know. It's so um, important that adults know this and as confronting as it is for your listeners to hear and, you know, you will have 
possibly people listening that are survivors themselves and are hoping that we don't trigger them. But, you know, we used to not talk about domestic violence and we're getting it better at talking about that. But this is, this, you know, it's the secrecy is how it is able to keep, you know, going on. So... And the other I'm really thing is, to you for shining the light on it. Oh, thank you. Um, the The other thing is that when when people disclose, when children disclose, or they disclose as adults, and I've heard this from many people in my clinical practice, they are not believed. Yes, and and that's also so a problem honest, for many people. Go ahead. Definitely, um, you know, one of the things when we te- teach the kids about the safety team. We also teach them the importance of persisting. And, and like you, I've had so many parents come up after workshops and go, you know, bless you for teaching this because I told my mum or I told my teacher and they didn't believe me mm-hmm. and I never, ever told anybody else because of the grooming, because of the, um, you know, the, the people that do this are such manipulators that they, you know, are quite often in power and, and things like that. Um, you know, in the Royal Commission that we had here in Australia into... Um, historical sex abuse in in um, churches and and scouts and things like that. You know the people were always in power so that the children didn't tell. And you know you and I both know that children don't lie about this. The, the percentage is so minor, and yet they did a big study here in Australia, and one third of adults that were surveyed, a fifth, uh, nearly sixty thousand adults were in the survey. One third said they would not. Sorry, only one third of adults believe said they would believe a child if they were sexually abused. Only two-thirds one third would the believe child would lie about it. Most two thirds yeah. thought the children would lie. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So for your listeners, one of the things that I do in my training is um, I teach people how to receive a disclosure from a child because you know for for the for anybody to come for, whether adults or children, not to be believed is, you know, it's almost like having um, it happen all over again. So I teach people to say, if somebody discloses, say, thank you for telling me, I believe you, it's not your fault, and I'm going to do something about it. Because even if an adult goes, (gasps) and, you know, um, shows any sort of emotion, that may shut the child down. So you have to stay calm. So by having that, those four sentences in your mind um, and not being believed is the hardest thing. And perpetrators might be saying, well, nobody's going to believe you. You know, you're only a kid or whatever. But we have to believe children. Honestly, the percentage of children that make up stories um, is so minor. Um, and, you know, then we have to trust authorities when they're um, taking the disclosure from kids, you know, they're experienced and they know how to, if a child was telling a lie, but but most don't. And, you know, with very young children, when they tell their story, how would they, you know, how would they be able to make up that stuff if it wasn't their experience? Exactly. And, you know, um, it's very distressing for an adult to hear. They might feel like a failure. They may feel like they didn't protect their child when uh, when a disclosure has been made. But how much better do those children do who feel supported and nurtured and safe when disclosing abuse? What is their recovery and their future future adjustment in life uh, like as compared with those who weren't believed and who weren't supported? Exactly. And, you know, um, because, you know, if it's um, most of it's people they know and love, 
possibly um, people in their family and it can destroy families and, and rip them apart. But to be believed, um, just those four sentences, um, I've you know I've had people that have disclosed and when when years later they come back and say, thank you so much because that made the the healing process so much better because I had you know I was believed and things like that. So, do you mind um, repeating those you know, four sentences sure. again? So I'm glad you told me. I believe you. It's not your fault, and I'm going to do something about it. Excellent. Now, I'm not sure your statistics in Canada, but here in Australia, we have a very, very low conviction rate against um, perpetrators, unfortunately, for lots of different reasons. So one of the other really important components of the protective education program is teaching the children the correct anatomical names for their body parts. Mm-hmm. Because if a child discloses and they, you know, there are so many, um, you know, funny names here in Australia at the moment, you know, most kids will call their front private part a cookie. Um, And, you know, parents often play that down. Um, You know, they don't want kids saying penis and vagina and vulva and testicles and things like that. But we have the best chance of getting a conviction when kids know those proper words. But also we had a um, Professor Frieda Briggs here in Australia who's worked with many, many uh, perpetrators. Um, When she was interviewing them, perpetrators said if a child was using the correct anatomical names for their body parts, they would leave that child alone because it is going to be so much easier Mm. for a child to disclose. Um, You know, I know of a story of a little girl who told her pre-primary teacher that somebody was putting something in her secret pocket and the teacher's going, oh, that's lovely, dear. Now off you go and play. Wow. And she said the correct word. So, you know, parents um, are quite often confronted by, um, oh, I don't want, you know, I'm taking away my child's innocence and things like that. But it really isn't. You know, we don't call an elbow a flim flam flippity jib. Right. And yet, you know, if it's all, and if we start, you know, I believe that we need to start protective education by three and then another thing that I, I talk a lot about is, is children seeing pornography. Um, and I say we have to have that conversation by six at the latest. And again, parents are horrified. But when you incorporate it into the public and private lesson, when we're talking about private body parts, and I call them private pictures and private movies when I'm talking with children, um, when it's all done as part of this one lesson, it really isn't. You know, difficult. And you just tell children, if you see pictures or moves people with no clothes on, come and show mummy. Or, you know, if it's at school, go and show your teacher what you've seen. Right. Um, it it's such important information. Holly Ann, I've got to cut you off there. We're up against the clock. It's such important information. <laughs> I'll definitely get you back. Holly Ann Martin, Managing Director for Safe for Kids, specializing in protective education for parents and teachers. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. He is clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor whose voice you've heard before, who's dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. He has also dealt with racism and has done a phenomenal, hilarious and informative talk on fixing racism. It was a TEDx talk done four years ago. It's gone viral. It's had millions of views. He is the one and only Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. 
Good evening, Marlene. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing tonight? Good, thanks. Great. Uh, we are, I am not sure what our world is coming to, but I know we are uncovering racism isn't new. We're just filming it. Um, you know, it's just devastating to hear and to see actually some of these videos we can't even watch. We can't even bring ourselves to watch them. Um, the George Floyd one, I, I was never able to watch that. Uh, the, there was an autopsy report that Richard Brooks was shot in twice in the back. Um, it was a homicide. That was what was listed on the autopsy by police officers um this i did watch that one um and you just think you're just you're just shaking your head i mean it's chilling and horrific he was a 27 year old father of two um it just went down some path that i'll never understand you have faced racism in your life and and did delivered a phenomenal talk and offered um some ways to fix racism it you know i i hope we can <laughs> um it's it just such a horrific malignancy a societal malignancy that we have um tell me a little bit about i mean you shared very personal stories on that tedx talk um tell me a little bit about your experience with racism yeah marine um, you know I, I had to do the tedx talk from for, for a personal reason is that it was part of my healing process and what I tried to do was explore, and, and there's lots of reasons why this racism is going on and people are getting hurt and traumatized. But I wanted to develop the theory that a lot of times it's really about misunderstanding people. It's about subconscious or implicit bias, so that when we see somebody and or, or, or they are talking with a certain accent or they come from a certain country, that we attribute characteristics to them without even getting to know them. And then when you, when you have those presumptions about people, it leads to misunderstandings. And then in the worst case, isn't just misunderstandings and not understanding people, but then, then thinking that you're somehow better than them or that they're in, somehow less than you or they're not worthy to be there or that they need to be in jail or that you need to do something um, physical or traumatic against them. And, and, um, and that leads to some of the horrific things that we're seeing right now. The racism isn't new. It's been going on for thousands of years. I think what's elevated things in the last uh, few months is certainly is that you know, people are recording, people are talking about these issues. And, and, and I think that's, that's important just to have the dialogue about it. Uh, it certainly is. And countless young people, especially young black and Latino men and women, have been victims of police brutality and other forms of institutional racism in our communities and around the country. And uh, I, I think finally people are saying enough is enough and, and black lives matter. And that's the that is the carry on of of this situation. Um you when in your TEDx uh, talk, you talked about um, you were you were being discriminated against, but you were confused because they got it wrong, actually. Yeah, so in, a, in, a, in an attempt to be a little bit lighthearted, but it was very stinging at the time. So I, in high school, was called, you know, um, um, Paki and Hindu, and really confusing back then because I didn't come from Pakistan and and I wasn't a Hindu. So it made me think that are they confused? But as I often said, that, and what I've thought about since then is, it didn't matter what words they were using. It's the it's the venom. It was the it was the angry tone in their voice. That yes, they were misunderstanding me, but really they were they were using those words to hurt me right and 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 nor did they ever make the effort to understand who I really was and and that and that's just one step and sadly no matter what you achieve and know how no matter how great you are and you're, you're seeing this with some of the African-American um, athletes 
politicians, comedians that say, despite the successes and how hard they've worked, you know, people were breaking them right back down to some of those um, um, racist remarks. And, and, and they're struggling with that as well. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, part of this Black Lives Matter movement is this um, this truth that children are being pushed into prison. You know, and, and uh, children of color face harsher discipline and are more likely to be pushed out of school than white children. You decided to face the um, uh, the racism, the discrimination in, in a way you, I guess you'd accepted that uh, you were not going to be, unlike many parents across Canada, you'd accept that you weren't going to be uh, uh, an NHL hockey player. <laughs> <laughs> uh, however, you so you decide to focus on academics. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. So the story I tell is that uh, I, I jokingly say, my kids laugh when I say this, I was never going to be a super athlete like a Wayne Gretzky. And so I said, so what could I do? I studied harder and I got the better marks and I did all sorts of, you know, nerdy, geeky research projects. And one was that I figured out how to make fuel from chicken manure. And, and, and the joke I tell is I won these national awards and so forth. And in my high school yearbook, it says the, the graduate most likely to produce a chicken manure powered space shuttle. Um, and so the interesting thing was that, you know, I achieved some levels of success, but but what I say in the talk is that, you know, it didn't take long for somebody to break even that down and to say, but at the end of the day, you're still different. You're still from some country and you still belong to a group that we don't like. And um, and how that, that, no matter how hard you achieve to break out of people trying to push you down, that, that you're still fighting it. And, and do you still feel that today? I mean, you know, you were one of the lucky ones, if you will, one of the lucky students, because 40% of students expelled from U.S. schools each year are children of color, black children. Um, so you decided to, you know, take on academics. And um, But is this something that you still feel on the inside, um, this uh, some some feeling that I, can, I am not worthy of even uh, speculating? <laughs> That, that, that's a good question, Maria, and I think it's hard for me to um, um, answer that because I think I'm in a position of privilege now, right? I'm, I'm in a profession where that, as a physician, you know, it's still seen as somewhat respectful. Probably nurses are respected more and more, you, you would say, or should be. Unless you um, have but, a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> unless you have a radio show. Um, but, but, you know, I, and I live in an urban place and I have a lot of amenities around me. And so, you know, I think I'm in a position of privilege, so I don't, I don't tolerate it anymore. And I think that if I, if I get um, the sense that somebody is discriminating against me or, 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 or making some comments that are hurtful, I, I will challenge them now. So I think what I, I, so I don't, I'm not sure if those thoughts and, and those racist, uh, racist sort of reactions from people are necessarily gone. Um, perhaps the difference is I've got confidence now to challenge them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yours happened in school. You were a very young child. Um, and, you know, this happens in school. The, uh, it, the impact is so tremendously negative. 3.5 times bl- of black student. well, black students are three and a half times uh, more likely to be suspended than white students. I mean, obviously unfair. If, if you know, people can say a lot about me. Uh, one thing they can't say is that I'm not fair. <laughs> 
Um, and that is just so unfair. And also black and Latina students are twice as likely not to graduate um, from high school and 68% of all males in state and federal prison in the U.S. do not have a high school diploma. I mean, it's at this time that, you know, teachers are discriminating against children. I have a friend who wrote a very impassioned blog about how she was about seven years old and the teacher was just rude and horrific to her and just made her feel, you know, less than. And this has remained with her for many, many years. And and so when teachers and other parents, she wasn't allowed to actually go to a friend's house because uh, she was black. And but yet that was her best friend. But the father wouldn't let her in. I have another friend who's was dating the son of a doctor. And, um, you know, he just made just such a disparaging comment about that, um, about uh, actually she wasn't even dating him at the time. They were friends and the father was afraid she was going to date. I mean, these are just some ridiculous notions that people have out there and, and, and we lead you know, that leads us into this. But but I, it was a great TEDx talk that you did. Phenomenal. I suggest people, where can people go to, uh, what's the full title? I know it's Fixing Racism. It's, 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 a, it's a, just into the YouTube search engine. If you type in Fixing Racism, uh, me and my uh, me and my hair, hairdo at the time will show up there. <laughs> um, but the other thing that you touched on, Maureen, that's really important is that, you know, when p- people um, watch that talk, especially my friends that I grew up with and my teachers and my family, my siblings, they all said, why didn't you say something? Right. Why didn't you bring this out? And and my, those encounters with the bullies in the locker room that I talk about in that TEDx talk, you know, it's it's um it wasn't something you feel comfortable talking about. And some of the teachers said, I wish you'd said something. Or you. And so I think, you know, for the, all the teachers that really do care they, they, you know, and, and the parents and siblings that do, is, you know, keep a pulse of the pulse of people that you think are okay when they may not be. Mm-hmm. It, well, it is embarrassing anytime you are bullied, at, you know, or discriminated against. I mean, it's highly embarrassing. And the other thing is, and I think that's what we're seeing in the world now, is that people hadn't spoken up in the past. I mean, many people knew that police brutality existed, although there are many fabulous police officers, but that is inherent in that system. Um, Many people just do not speak up. They allowed their children, their white children, to have the privilege over um, black children. There are lots of programs um, in the in the U.S. and and to integrate um, students and I remember saying to a friend who uh, lived in a town I'm from Boston originally as you know um, but just lived in a town outside and so students uh, were bussed in to her town and I said do you ever have those kids over she said no you know and it was just kind of this well why not you know and it was just us versus them and there's so much of that attitude that exists because uh, you know there's beauty in everybody and you know uh, I mean just everyone it's it's what's inside of them that counts and um you and, know. and get to and get to know them right exactly the thing we talk about in the talk is then you'll find that there's a lot more similarities and there are differences and that's really what will build connection of course of course and thank you so much and and your tedx talk just continues uh to be so pertinent and so important um and and i thank you for sharing your story because i i know it can't have been easy you know thinking you were going to be some great athlete and then you turn out to be just you know an academic <laughs> sure, rub, sure, rub it in, Maureen. Why don't you? <laughs> Just some slouch of an academic. Anyway, brilliant. <laughs> Invited on the Sunday Night Hell Show. <laughs>
<laughs> but anyway, and I'm glad you're brilliant. I'm glad you focused on that instead of athletics because we're going to be talking about COVID-19 long haulers. Mary from Winnipeg is on the line. Hi, Mary. Hi, thanks for accepting the call. <clears throat> My pleasure. I want to ask the doctor about uh, racism within the provision of medical nursing services to patients and also what it's like to be a person of color working as a doctor in the Canadian healthcare system. That's a, an, an excellent question, and I can tell you not just from my own perspective, but for our students and residents and Maureen probably from nurses and other healthcare professionals, you know, we've often um, tried to figure out, you know, how, how do we draw that balance? So the classic example is somebody who says, I don't want that student nurse, or I don't want that student doctor because they're whatever, of whatever ethnic group. And at what point do you say to them, no, you must see them because otherwise you're discriminating or you're racist. But at the same time, they're sick and they're unwell. It's just really the time to push them about their views. Um, and we've really struggled with that. And, and institutions have said, no, we're not going to tolerate that. And I've had, I've had people um, challenge me. And maybe not even challenge me. I'm a family physician, so often I refer patients to specialists. And, and I've had patients say, don't send me to a specialist who belongs to this ethnic group. And I really have to refuse and I have to put my foot down. So I think I think there's an opportunity to educate, um, and but but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It still exists there. It just we have to educate our patients that really it's your health that's most important, and 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 the ethnicity of the doctor or the nurse really shouldn't be taken into account. Yeah, and unfortunately, racism is it's inherent in, in every institution. You've done tremendous work at the University of British Columbia, by the way, Dr. Parhar, around, you know, dealing with this, uh, developing programs. And, uh, you know, it's it's everywhere. This is the thing. The only difference is that we're filming it now. Thanks, Mary, for your question. Um, just to get back to the COVID-19 um, situation, you sent me an article about the, the COVID long haulers, Dr. Parhar. Tell me yeah. what they, who they are. It seems every week we're learning some new things about this uh, crazy illness, uh, Maureen. And so the long haulers are people who've had symptoms lasting more than 30 days, and it's a complex situation. So these aren't necessarily people who get hospitalized and certainly not in the ICU, and they may not even die from this condition, but they have symptoms that persist and often vague symptoms like muscle aches and fatigue. The challenge is this, though, Maureen, is that some of them haven't been tested at all because back when we were not testing everyone, they didn't meet the criteria to be tested. And, and, and so they weren't tested at all, or others have been tested and they tested negative. And then another group are ones that have tested positive, but, but their course isn't following that normal two, three week span. So um, a lot of people are discriminating against them or challenging if they're really sick. Um, and, and remember, Maureen, early on, we said if you had COVID-19 when you had fever, cough, and difficulty breathing, only later did we find out that a lot of people who were in this group were having difficulty or infections in their brain, um, their heart, and in their intestines. So so I think what, what the message here is, is that we shouldn't discount people who have symptoms that just don't fit and, 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 and are going on for symptoms longer than 30 or 40 days. And, and I think the truth will come out as we study the long-term effects of COVID-19. And the irony here is that these people, according to this article, um, who, are who are the long haulers, they're experiencing discrimination. People aren't believing them. They're saying to them, oh, prob you probably just have anxiety or you're stressed. Um, and so they're a, a burgeoning group of people with COVID-19 who have had 
potentially a negative uh, test, as you mentioned, and uh, significant serious problems, and they were all young and healthy prior to uh, getting this diagnosis, and the symptoms have waxed and waned and warped over time. So um, it's just amazing. Uh, but anyway, I'd, I wish we had more time, Dr. Parhar, but I hope you'll come back next week. Oh, well, sure to be here. Thanks, Maureen, for having me on. Thank you so much. If we were having people come into the studio, we'd get you a desk. <laughs> anyway, until next week, or all the messages you send me all week, <laughs> which I look forward to, and videos. I, I, I have to keep you busy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. Thank you for keeping me on my toes. I think I've had two in the past, and I know tons of registered nurses, but they're all so shy. But this guy's not. uh, We've never met before, but uh, he is a colleague, Eric, and he works in male sexual health. Good evening, Eric. Hey, hello. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Thank you so much for coming on the show. I think nurses' voices need to be heard, and I really appreciate you joining me. Not a problem. All right. So you work specifically in male sexual health. Um, So what are some of the most common concerns that you see uh, where you work? for men. Yeah. So the number one thing, I mean, there's four things, but I'll start with the first one is that uh, people are very concerned about getting HIV when there is zero chance of getting HIV. Okay. Explain that a little bit more. Sure. So often what happens is I get these fellows who come in and they're very anxious. They're very worried because they went outside of their norm. For instance, maybe they're in a relationship and they had a lap dance at a bachelor party or something, and then it's outside of what they usually do, so they think somewhere in their mind that they should be punished. So their first thought is, oh, God, I have HIV. Is that the one that they're worried, the sexually transmitted infection or the infection that they're worried about the most? Yes, and I will say it's the heterosexual men who are most afraid of HIV, where the the gay men just are they are much more educated in the subject. I was going to say, because it's, it's largely about education. So, so a man in a heterosexual relationship gets a lap dance at a bachelor party, and, um, uh, and then they come into the clinic freaking out because this was not their normal thing. And so what, how do you calm their nerves? Sometimes you have to call it out for what it is. And, and I asked the question, I'm like, is it more so a feeling of guilt? Like, are you feeling guilty about what you did and you think you should be punished? And then usually that's a, there's like a turning moment where they're kind of like, yeah, that maybe that's what it is. I just like, I just feel like I should, like I did something stupid, so I should be in trouble for it. Um, and it's usually something really minuscule too. They're like, oh, like what if she sweat on me and like it went through my clothes and now I have HIV. But if you know any education based on that, you would know that HIV does not get transferred through sweat, for instance. Right. And so you know, it shows you what a great job uh, we're doing, <laughs> educating yeah, people about counseling. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I'm glad you're doing that great job. So you're able to put their minds at ease. Do they want a test done or do they want to be tested or do you test them? Yeah. You know, usually what happens is they come in the day after and they want a test or they come in like in a period where you can't quite get an accurate test. Um, so I do have to tell them that like we could test today. It'll tell you it not what you're looking for, but we could have a baseline at the very, at the very least. 
Right. And uh, and so are they feeling worse about pot- potentially getting the infection and, and then passing it on to their partner and then ultimately getting caught doing a lap dance? Is that a worry as well? That's usually what happens. Yeah, that's what, that's what the, the spot pattern is. Right. And But that is a risk in certain situations where people go outside of their relationship. Um, if they're in a sexless marriage, for example, and then decide to have a one-night stand or maybe visit uh, sex workers uh, repeatedly, there is a risk of uh, transmission of uh, HPV and, yeah. and herpes, for example. So those yeah. are... Uh, some of the more common or if not the most common sexually transmitted infections and are people educated about those uh no (laughs) (laughs) well let's do it i will say no that's a big fear too is people uh i I look at all sorts of of different genitalia and it always comes down to people thinking do i have hpv do i do i have herpes do i have something and and nine times out of ten it's it's actually nothing um, it's usually there's something called sebacea hypoplasia, which is just a simple oil gland that happens to be a little bit enlarged, for instance, or a folliculitis, which is a hair follicle that's irritated from shaving. Like people come in right away thinking they have something because of that. And so we don't educate men about folliculitis, which is actually a very common condition. And um a common skin condition where the hair follicles, uh, as you mentioned, become inflamed. And, and shaving is one of the most common reasons. You know, you got to be clean down there. <laughs> or so, That's totally true. So to speak, yeah. quote unquote, clean. <laughs> <laughs> people, people do the manscaping thing. And um, because I do have a, a lot of patients uh, who come in for HPV treatment, because it is out there, um, what they're always shocked to learn, and this is the takeaway, is that if you have HPV or you're worried about getting HPV, stop shaving down to the skin. And the reason being is that if you're using a razor to shave down to your skin, whether you can see it or not, you're creating something called a micro tear. And the micro tear is what is allowing the virus to go in under the skin. And that's how it grows. It has to have an entry point. So it is caused by a bacteria or fungal or, or fungus. Uh, no, is that HPV right? is a virus. No, 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 sorry, the folliculitis. Oh. Sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Folliculitis, folliculitis. Is, is just caused by bacteria or, or anything else that's in the area. Sometimes it's just irritated because of a razor that's old or dull. Right. And then the HPV or the herpes, uh, as you say, those micro tears, that provides, because the skin is, a, is the, the first line of defense, basically. Totally. And skin yeah. can keep a virus out, but when you have little tears of, and the, so you know if you expose the blood, if you will, um, you know then the virus can more easily transmit through that. Correct? That's right. And um, I will say that HPV is very, very treatable. Um, once you have a visible sign of it, it's very easy to get rid of. And uh, I would recommend that anyone who does have medical coverage, such as Blue Cross, but do keep in mind everyone's coverage is different, is that you could get the vaccine covered from work. And uh, whether you're 30, 40, 50, or 60, if you're still sexually active, it is recommended. Exactly, exactly. I have Matt on the line from Victoria. Hey, Matt. Hey, can you hear me? I can, yeah. All right, right on. Um, So, uh, long-time fan, listen on all the time uh, when I can and um, love you. Uh, I just, uh, it's funny, like I hit a note when you were talking about um, like grooming areas. Manscaping. Your private, yeah, manscaping. 
And mm-hmm. I, there were a couple of times where I got um, like ingrown whatevers. And I thought that I had a, I, I thought that I had a STD or something like that. And no, it just turned out that like, it's, it's just sometimes there are certain places you shouldn't put a razor. <laughs> right. <exactly. laughs> so says the nurse and the listener. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, funny that this kind of resonated with me and I mean I still manscape but I don't <laughs> put razors down there anymore <laughs> long beautiful hair okay um, so which leads me to think of rash don't ask me why but anyway <laughs> this whole yeah, conversation I think yeah, rash yeah. I get a lot of men coming into my clinical practice with a um, you know they have redness on the tip of their penis do you see that um, thank you so much, Matt, for your call, for your contribution. We're going to send you a razor. Anyway. <laughs> a clean one. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Brand new, brand new. Um, Eric, yes, yes. do you see men with uh, redness on the tip of their penis or the glands or the head of the penis? Absolutely. So uh, sometimes it can be called uh, balanitis. Um, that's very common, too. It, it doesn't always have to do with poor hygiene, per se, and I will say that um, people who either circumcised or not, so cut or uncut, everyone can get it. Uh, it can be a yeast, like a fungal-type infection, very common. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing is it's people who um, are washing and they're using very scented products. Um, those can cause irritation to the skin, and then with that, with irritation or rubbing or friction, and it can cause, again, the micro tears. Uh, which just gives a good place for any bacteria or fungus to start to grow. That's right. Yeah, you make such a great point. You know, I, I think of these things with women's intimate health. Um, you know, we recommend, uh, you know, non-scented uh, products. A lot of women will douche. A lot of women, you know, will feel that they need to clean themselves down there. It's, you know, as I say, the vagina is a self-cleaning oven. Uh, it takes <laughs> care of itself. You know, use plain white toilet paper. You know, try to stay away from, you know, adding any products down there, anything scented or um, fruity or anything. Always go with the real McCoy. Um, but totally yeah, agree. yeah. So you make so men sexual health. It's the same basically, and so you know. It, also for women, vaginal uh, health is really important. They can get the micro tears when the estrogen decreases in the urogenital tract during uh, perimenopause, menopause, and that can cause leakage of urine, painful sex, postcodal bleeding. But the same goes for men because men are man-shaving and right. yeah, uh, men are, or manscaping, I should say. And, um, and man-shaving, causing, manscaping. Man-shaving, <laughs> exactly, whatever it is. Uh, they're getting down there with the razor. Um, so, no, it's great information. I really appreciate you coming on, and um, I'd love to invite you back. I would love to come back and yeah, talk more. That would be great because I think it's an important subject. Men don't typically talk about their issues. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. And, you know, they rush in and, and are looking for a test, uh, um, you know, when they actually maybe should um, maybe take a discipline course. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to have a lap dance after you get married. <laughs> yeah. Per the contract. Right. Per the contract. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Eric RN, thank you so much. All right. Take care. Appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.